0: everybody, this is Jim, and we have a fill-in co-host for Mike while he's away. His name is Jeremy. Say hi, Jeremy. Hello. (laughs) So, I I hate to say it or age myself, but I've known Jeremy since he was born. Jeremy, uh... That was a long time ago, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) Not as long as when... I'm not uh, that young. I was born... (laughs) But Jeremy, I, I decided to ask to join me because he's very knowledgeable in music. And Jeremy being not a, well, a lot, I wouldn't say a lot younger, but Jeremy is into classic rock and just and new stuff, but he's pretty well versed in music. So, this is show 21 and we're going to be talking about our five favorite live albums. So I'm gonna start. My first album is BB King, Live at the Regal. This album is from way back in 1964 and this album is widely heralded as one of the greatest blues albums ever recorded. Ranked at number 141 in Rolling Stones, this goes way back, 2003 edition of 500 Greatest Albums of All Time. Have you heard this album? I have, yes. Okay. So, this is one of my favorites. Uh, I've seen... I saw B.B. B. King uh, eight times in concert. First time was probably in late 80s at the State Theater in Easton. And I kind of knew who B.B. King was because of U2. I think it was 1987, maybe 88, when he did When Love Comes to Town with uh, U2. But I remember that concert, it was you know, it's a state theater, you have seats, you're not standing, but I remember the seats vibrating. It was like incredible. The band was really tight, you know, really great concert. And after that, I just really got into B.B. King a lot. The great thing about this album is you can hear the excitement in the in the crowd. They really want to be there. They want to, it's almost like a, a Beatles concert, you know, with the screaming, So uh, some musicians, uh, Carlos Santana, Eric Clapton, John Mayer, and Mark Knopfler uh, have acknowledged using this album as a primer before their performances, meaning, you know, they play this before their shows. Uh, This was recorded on November 21st, 1964 at the Regal Theater in Chicago. And this is a venue uh, B.B. King claimed to have played a hundred times before. And his backing band consisted of Duke Jethro on the piano. Leo Lauchi, if I'm saying that right, on bass, Kenneth Sands on the trumpet and Johnny Board and Bobby Fort on the tenor saxes, Uh, Sonny Freeman on the drums. So this is interesting, Uh, Jethro was originally scheduled to play the organ, but after his organ broke, King instructed Jethro to play the piano. And when Jethro said he did not know how to play the piano which I would assume, if you knew how to play the organ, probably knew how to play the piano. Uh, He replied, well, just sit there and pretend that's what you do most of the time anyway. Uh, This is considered uh, B.B. King's best album, uh, but Jethro says both he and King did not understand what all the fuss was about. Everybody acted like it was something special, but he said to us it was just another night, just another day at the office. We didn't know the album would turn out like this. And for Jethro, uh, playing with King was the highlight of his musical career and a challenge. They would open up with Every Day of the Blues, and after that, we had no idea what we would play the rest of the night. We never knew what he was going to play next or what key he was going to play in, but we always managed. And after five years, uh, Jethro found the road too much, so he kind of retired. He said, you wake up in the morning, can't remember what city you're in, You go to sleep in one city and wake up in another one. And after leaving his band, he formed his own, but he gave it up all a couple years later. And he said, I quit the music business and went back to engineering. So I really think this album should be a a little bit higher uh, in the top 10 of the live blues albums. It's number 299. You know, I'm sure there'll be other blues albums that are higher higher than this one, but this should be, you know, a little bit up higher than that. When you first listen to this album, like, all you have to do is listen to the first song. You'll be hooked for the, the entire album. Uh, most of the songs, are, they're, they're foot stomping. There are some slow ones like Sweet Little Angel, Worry, Worry, You Done Lost Your Good Thing Now. Uh, my, favorite song, my favorite song is How Blue Can You Get. So, How Blue Can You Get is, of course, a blues song, which was first recorded by Johnny Moore's. Three Blazers in 1949, and it's a slow 12-bar blues, uh, that jazz critic Leonard Feather and his wife, Jane Feather, are credited as writing. Uh, the song's been recorded by several blues and other artists, and in 1964, it did become a hit for B.B. King and became a staple of his live shows. This song, uh, B.B. King kind of talks this song up. He says, uh, on this next tune, while we are reminiscing here, I would like for you to pay attention to the lyrics, and not so much to my singing or the band, but now we're going to go way down in the alley. The best part is uh, towards the end of the song, there's a little riff uh, that he sings. Uh, I love this. I gave you a brand new Ford. You said you- I want a Cadillac. And uh, of course, the audience is totally... They're, Screaming and like as he like gives the punchline sorta. Of. I bought you a ten dollar dinner. You said thanks for the snack. I let you live in my penthouse. You said it was just a shack. I gave you seven children. Now you want to give them back? And that's where they all like go nuts. So basically, I'd say if you're if you're not t- too familiar with uh, blues music, I'd give this one a a listen first, and then uh, listen to some of the other BB King albums. What do you got? First
1: off, thanks for having me on the show. Really appreciate oh, it. My five albums, I kind of picked based on how they made me feel from the standpoint of the energy that they provided to me in one way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. You know, a- as a kid, I grew up in the 90s, but I didn't mm-hmm. listen to 90s music. I was hooked on whatever my parents listened to. Yeah. yeah. And that's why you and I have so much in common when it comes to music. I love Mm the sixties, the seventies and the eighties. My first album is not going to be on any top 100 lists. Okay. But it's very, very personal to me. Holds a great spot in my heart. It is called, and there will be a next time live from Detroit. Band is Def Mm Leppard. One of my all time favorite bands. I was at the show. Uh, It happened in 2016. In Michigan, uh, DTE Energy Theater. And I remember Tesla and REO Speedwagon first opened for Def Leppard. Mm -hmm. They took the stage. I had no idea whatsoever that we were going to be recording that night. Oh, wow. And they informed (laughs) us that the show would be live. So, of course, as soon as it released the next year, I had to go out and get it. Mm -hmm. And I've listened to it several times just because it took me back to that moment in the night, yeah. you know, in that time and being there, I was eighteen rows away from the stage. All three bands that night were tremendous, but Def leopard blew the house down. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen them five times, and that was without a shadow of a doubt the best that I have heard, seen, mm-hmm. or watched them perform. uh the The set list was a typical greatest hits type of list. Mm-hmm. You know, Def Leppard is one of those bands; they've been relevant. Throughout the 70s, the 80s, 90s, even today, somehow they have done an amazing job making music modern, keeping Mm -hmm. it, you know, classic, Mm -hmm. but adding a pinch of kind of that new sound. But to see a concert like this, they didn't have to incorporate some of those newer albums that maybe the fans aren't in love with, or I shouldn't say the fans, your diehard fans are going to love any album that gets Yeah, I like
0: Def Lepper, but I don't, I really don't know... I couldn't tell you their last album or their last three, maybe.
1: Right. And most but, casual fans yeah. can't. And mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. But a lot of times you go to a show and you're stuck hearing songs that you might not know or they're yeah. brand new. So they're trying oh, yeah. to get it out there so that, you know, people mm-hmm. can hear it. To see a to see a set list like this, to see a performance like this, nothing but hits, nothing but great sound, just Joe Elliott going out and belting and yeah. performing at his absolute best it was unbelievable the energy was unbelievable and each time i listen to this album i think i feel that same energy as mm-hmm. when i was in the crowd so
0: we'll be in that close to correct what, eighth row or 18th row 18th row still yeah
1: yep. yep. right there so this is my number five album it's been played several times uh when I purchased it, it was actually the live C D as well as the DVD performance. Oh wow. <laughs> so if I ever wanna stick it on TV and watch mm-hmm. it, I can do that as well and kind of reminisce yeah. that way. So as I said, it just holds really close spot to my heart. And this one to me is a must-listen, if nothing else, just for a mm-hmm. fan, because you're gonna hear their best songs top to bottom.
0: Yeah, a lot of bands have been around a while. They they might have had a huge career. In the beginning, maybe their first two, three albums, but they still know they have to do those songs and people want to still hear them too.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean,
0: Def Leppard was one of the the first concerts I saw. I think the opening band was like a band called Anvil or something like that. I don't know. Some heavy metal band.
1: The first time I saw them, they were actually with Brian Adams and I was so disappointed because being a big Def Leppard fan... I wanted to see them close the show and they actually opened for mm-hmm. Brian Adams. Oh, okay. But I must say, Brian did a great job because I became a, became a mm-hmm. Brian Adams fan that night based on his performance as well. <laughs> I saw him
0: so long ago. The drummer had two arms there you go. when I saw him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Shout out to Rick Allen. Hello, yeah. the drummer with one arm. And he's also a painter. Yes. You know? Yeah. 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 He, uh, he sells his art. He puts on art exhibits or. Yeah. He was
0: at the uh, short Hills mall. Might have been before last year, or before, you know, COVID, but...
1: And he was just that came to Russia within the last display. couple of months. Oh, okay. Down in Philadelphia. Yeah,
0: yeah. I guess he uses uh, maybe his teeth, too. I don't... <laughs> <laughs> no, I like Def Leppard. So my next one, I'm going kind of in order of year. This is, we're up this 1967. This is uh, the Yardbirds. And there's a reason why I like the Yardbirds, of course, because of Jimmy Page. Big Led Zeppelin fan.
1: I love Led Zeppelin. Yeah.
0: And this is, of course, the band that Jimmy Page was in before, right before uh, he joined Led Zeppelin or formed Led Zeppelin. The band broke up in 68, so this is towards the end. And I don't think they were together more than five years, maybe. I don't know. Uh, But this is live in Stockholm and Offenbach, Germany. So, it's a combination There are some repeats on this, you know, songs, because, you know, it's two separate concerts, but it is on one album. Now, Jeremy, do you know the Yardbirds included at different times three of the top guitarists? I Uh, did not know that. In fact, Rolling Stone, I don't know when this is from, but of their top 100 guitarists, three of the guitarists from the Yardbirds are in the top five. Wow. Yeah. So, that's incredible. So, we have Eric Clapton. Fantastic. Jeff Beck. Great. And Jimmy Page. Eric Clapton uh, was the first guitarist or famous guitarist now that that was in the band. And then Jimmy Page was asked, I guess, to be in the band, but uh, he offered up uh, his friend Jeff Beck. And then eventually Jimmy and Jeff were in the band together or recorded some songs together. And then Jimmy, of course, took over for Jeff Beck. I like Eric Clapton, but uh, Jimmy Page, of course, is I think more exciting guitarist, of course, than Eric Clapton. I mean, Eric Clapton's good at what he does, but you know, just different styles of guitar playing, of course. So this album has 12 songs on it. Uh, First song is Shape of Things. Not really a favorite of mine, and I actually have a name for some songs that have a certain beat, and I call them horse riding songs. when they have that, you know, just... So the second song is Happenings Ten Years... This is a weird title, I think. Happenings Ten Years Time Ago. Now, this is kind of psychedelic and probably one of the beginnings of psychedelic music. Believe it or not, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, and John Paul Jones are on the studio recording of this song. So, the bass player for Led Zeppelin. Wow. So, I guess when bands start out, you know, they kind of congregate towards other musicians and, you know, whatever was in the water in this area, I don't know, but they produced some great musicians. Now, the next song, uh, Over, Under, Sideways, Down. I can kind of hear some uh, Middle Eastern influences. I thought there was a sitar in this song, but there's not. It's just the way Jimmy Page is playing. The guitar. And according to Yardbird's drummer Jim McCarty, the basic outline for Over, Under, Sideways, Down was inspired by Bill Haley and his Comets, uh, Rock Around the Clock, which I actually don't hear in this song. I don't know where they're getting that.
1: No, I don't pick that up either.
0: Because there, there's a distinct um, guitar riff that starts the song. And that's why I attribute it to Middle Eastern. And then there's something interesting is that. Uh, Oh, McCarty, the drummer, uh, he claims that the original verse, over, under, sideways, down, that's the best way I have found, was changed to over, under, sideways, down, backwards, forwards, square, and round, because BBC censors might have objected to the vaguely suggestive line. Just him saying, that's the best way I have found. Like it was sexual or something, I guess. <laughs> So, uh, the fourth song is I Am, I'm a Man. Now, I've heard other versions of this song. It has to be the best version I've heard. I think Bo Diddley might have written I'm a Man. I also believe this song is stolen, <laughs> which back then uh, you could basically take an old blues song and just uh, rework the lyrics, change a
1: note or two. Oh, yeah. And, and, and say it, you wrote it. There was a time where a lot of blues musicians were not known. Yeah. But if their music was, and somebody could use it.
0: Yeah. Because there's a song by Muddy Waters, which is very famous, called Manish Boy. And it's basically... The first part of the song's not the same, but the... Wait, I have a harmonica here. Let's play it. So it's basically, uh it's like...
1: Uh, I woke, woke up, up this morning.
0: <laughs> you know, something like that. So that that's... And it's basically what this song sounds like. They both kind of, they sound almost exactly the
1: same. Very similar.
0: Yeah. What makes this version great is that there's a weird, like in the middle of the song, it kind of slows down. There's kind of a picking, guitar picking, like very uh, faint. And then it goes into like a psychedelic sound. Like it's a blues song and they like, they... It's like almost two different songs and then they go back into the song. It goes into some trippy sounds uh, and Jimmy Page starts playing the bow with his guitar. And I read he wasn't the first one to do this. Some people say he was. But you can hear people and I imagine you can kind of hear it right before it starts. People starting to scream, which means he brought out this bow and they knew what he was going to do. And they were all excited, you know, so that gives it a different feel to it. But this is my favorite song off this album. So, since this uh, album is, like I said, two different concerts, so number five, you have Shape of Things again. So, it's a different, different, uh, you know, venue that might be in Germany, that one. Number six is Heart Full of Soul. And I noticed it almost has the same guitar riff as Over, Under, Sideways, and Down. But it also, this song has, it sounds like the animals, the oh. band. Like even the vocals, the way, the way it's done. So, I like this song. And then number seven, we have You're a Better Man Than I. This is pretty much a straightforward song. And, but then, again, you hear a guitar solo halfway through, which is amazing guitar solo. So imagine a pop song and then it just kind of goes into... And then it goes right back into the verse. And then there's another guitar solo at the end. So, you know, it's live. So uh, I'm pretty sure they gave Jimmy Page free reign, you know, to do what he wanted. But they, they had to have known what he was going to do too. Now, number eight is Bob Dylan's song. I don't know if we're allowed to mention Bob Dylan, but I'm going to mention him. <laughs> and it's uh, most likely you go your way. Now, this is almost exactly to the Bob Dylan song, except it's sped up, of course. And I actually like this version better. So did the fans. And I, I honestly believe there's more harmonica in the Yardbird. Can you believe it? Than the Bob Dylan song. Uh, so, that's hard to believe. Yeah. So number nine, we have Over, Under, Sideways, and Down again. Uh, number 10 is my least favorite song called Little Games. It just sounds... I don't think the vocals are great, and it's kind of a disjointed song. So number 11, uh, My Baby. Uh, so this is a pretty straightforward song and probably the slowest song on there. And then number 12, you have uh, I'm a Man. So overall, this is a great live album. It captures the energy and the, and the crowd. Always like, you know, you don't want the audience to be overpowering. Like the B.B. King album, uh, it's a little distracting sometimes, but it is blues because they're screaming in be- after he says a verse or something. But it, that kind of all goes together on that, that one. But you don't want the crowd shouting out stuff. You know, I can't imagine being at this, this concert and, and hearing this kind of music maybe for the first time. You know, the energy. Things on the guitar maybe you didn't, never heard before. No, you know? what he did yeah.
1: was unbelievable.
0: Now, towards the end of the band's career, Jimmy Page, believe it or not, introduced Dazed and Confused, that song. Uh, This song was written by Jake Holmes, but the lyrics were changed by Robert Plant and Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin gave it a little little more punch to the lyrics because Yardbirds was I'm dazed and confused. Is it stay? Is it go? Give me a clue because I just want to know. Give me a clue as to where I am at. Feel like a mouse and you act like a cat. Right? So, of course, Led Zeppelin uh, was. Been dazed and confused for so long, it's not true. Wanted a woman, never bargained for you. Lots of people talk, and few of them know. Soul of a woman was created below. So I love the Led
1: Zeppelin version better.
0: Yeah, Cat and Mouse. I don't know. So there's a bunch of live albums from uh, the Clapton era and the Beck Page era. Uh, One actually came out in uh, 2020 called Live in France, and that's probably the best quality.
1: So Number four for me, because I'm going from most favorite to, I don't want to say least favorite, but my top five. So it'd be my fourth favorite would be Live at Wembley, 86 by Queen. Oh, okay. Uh, Growing up, I didn't know a lot about the band Queen. I didn't know a lot about Freddie Mercury or his his background. Again, I got hooked on music based on what my parents were listening to Mm -hmm. in the car or what they were playing on the stereo. And I just loved his voice. He had such a unique sound to him. You know, you could hear Bohemian Rhapsody and just kind of be like, whoa, this is different, you know. So Live at Wembley was an expansion of Queen other than the typical songs you heard on the radio. Your Mm -hmm. Fat Bottom Girls, your We Will Rock You, you know, stuff like that. It was a huge set list because it took place at Wembley Stadium, Mm -hmm. obviously, which is the largest venue in the world. Uh, Unbelievable place to hear music, from what I understand. I've never been there, unfortunately. I'd love to go, (laughs) (laughs) but I have also seen the DVD, so I've seen the concert live. And to put yourself in that crowd and kind of think what it would be like to hear the music, you know, that to me is also kind of mind blowing. Of You know what exactly would it have been like to be there Mm -hmm. and to hear that? But the set list, there was just there were so many different songs that I wasn't even aware of. It was it was released as a double disc. Was it just one night or was it? It was one huge day. Yep, they performed twenty eight songs. Wow, wow, yep. (laughs) But I mean, yes, they had their hits. You know, your Mm -hmm. another one, "Bites the Dust," "Bohemian Rhapsody." But then they even did like cover songs, like "Tutti Frutti." Uh That like. Wow. Freddie Mercury probably sang it better than... The original. Correct. Yeah. And to hear that... I'd have to hear that, because that, that's, that's it's just an checking. odd song. It is. A, it that. was a very odd song, <laughs> but it, stuck, it stood out to me that I had to talk about it today mm-hmm. on this podcast. Now, wasn't
0: Tutti Frutti written... Wasn't it Little richer or something? Uh, it's... I, I forget I, who yeah. sang it, but yeah. it
1: is... But Frutti... <laughs> yeah. But then when you, so I watched him perform that live on, on the DVD, Mm -hmm. obviously hearing the CD is one thing, but then when you're watching it, you you kind of envision, you you can see what's happening you you can see the performance happening. Mm -hmm. And when he's performing Tutti Frutti, he is just sweating profusely, Mm -hmm. you know, on the stage and he's into it and just rocking and shaking and dancing and you know, so he's just
0: singing. He's, he's not just playing f- piano. Or- no, he's no. just okay. letting yeah. loose at this mm-hmm.
1: point. He does play piano, yeah. at times throughout the concert yeah. as well. But that know-
0: that might. I'm trying to think. I have a DVD Queen Live. I'm think I'm not sure if it's that one.
1: It might be. I yeah. mean, it's a huge. There's probably a hundred thousand people in the audience. Just. Yeah listening and jamming out and Mm -hmm. but interesting thing about this album is actually released a year after his death okay so it happened in 86 but it didn't get released until 92 Mm -hmm. um so i think that's another thing that kind of drew me to the album was i didn't know about his death we didn't have the internet yeah you know i am old enough that i was around there were still cassette tapes for me yeah you didn't listen to the radio I, i i did listen to the radio but I my first music that I owned were on cassette tapes. I made mix tapes on the radio, <laughs> but to hear Freddie Mercury's voice and then wonder why is there no more Queen albums? Yeah, you know, not not knowing about oh, yeah. his death. Like I don't get it. They're they're a great band. They seem to be on the radio all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, why weren't they releasing new music? Then you kind of dig in. You start doing some research and you learn a lot more about the people you idolize or the people you look up to and. Mm-hmm. You know, you see some of the, the difficulties that he went through in life as a lead singer with, you know, his personal choices, which mm-hmm. those are his choices to make. Who cares? The guy was a fantastic musician. So he was a natural. Yeah. This this CD to me is one that I highly recommend for anybody, whether you're a Queen fan or not a Queen fan. Just listen to it mm-hmm. once top to bottom. And just kind of experience that live feeling. Because yeah. you can feel it even through the speakers. Yeah.
0: There are some bands that their live albums or the live performances are actually better than the studio. Because the studio kind of, uh, you know, you might record... It's, it's, it's a
1: different process. The studio can not... almost be too perfect sometimes. Whereas a live performance... I don't want to say it can show your flaws... But yeah. it can really show your determination and your passion for the I think the
0: you're music. constrained sometimes in that maybe, you're, okay, it's time to record the vocals. It's time to record the guitar, you know. Yeah. Or, I mean, I know there's some studio albums where they might record in one room. You know, some people still do that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you have more freedom. You, have, you can you can let loose a little bit more, I think absolutely or
1: and you the, know the instruments at times they don't sound right so now you got to yeah. redo the guitar you got to redo the drums yeah. or in, well also you know, the
0: thing you have a in the studio you have a producer and people telling you okay that do this again do yep, it. yep. but when you're on the stage you don't have anybody behind you it's live yeah.
1: whatever happens happens now <laughs> yeah unless you're milli vanilli then you can you know
0: and then there's some that sound their studio albums sound better than when they perform live so you know yes it depends Because that's another thing I was thinking. When you go to a concert, you don't want to hear... And I know there's a lot of bands now, newer bands, that use backing tracks, even backing uh, instruments. And the worst thing for me to go to a concert is to be at the concert. I don't want to hear exactly how the recording sounded. Right. I want it to sound like the song, but... I'm not really a note-for-note person, but I don't want to to hear the album, you know, the backing. I don't want to hear it exactly because I can just listen to the album then. You don't want
1: to feel like you put the CD in and you're just listening to a CD. Absolutely, I agree.
0: Okay, so my next album is from one of my favorite bands. And I debated putting this on because these are really are, I mean, for me, these are my five favorites, but I have a lot of favorites. You know, like live albums or albums in general. But but for me, it's Cheap Trick live at Budokan. <laughs> okay.
1: I love this album, too. Yeah.
0: So I know the first time I ever heard a Cheap Trick, I most likely heard Surrender or I Want You to Want Me. Which, uh, even when I see Cheap Trick now, I, I'm not a big fan of I Want You to Want Me. But I really, I'm I still either. like Surrender.
1: Yes, Surrender is a great song. I Want You to Want Me is just so overplayed on the radio.
0: What's interesting about this album is the versions on this out, al- this live album are the ones you heard on the radio. Which is very odd because normally they play the uh, the studio version. But you can hear the, the energy of the band again and the audience. Uh, this was released in Japan, of course Budokan is Japan on October 8th, 1978 and it was released in the US in February 79. So Cheap Trick, they found early su- success in Japan and they capitalized on this popularity by recording this album at the Nippon, <laughs> <isn't that right? laughs> N-I-P-P-O-N, Nippon Budokan in Tokyo on April 28th and April t- uh, 30th, 1978. So, they recorded in April when it came out. It wasn't released till October. There was an audience of 12,000 screaming Japanese fans and nearly drowned out the band at times. This album was intended for release only in Japan. Wow. But with strong airplay of the promotional album from Tokyo to You, I don't even know about that album. Like, it's got to be worth a lot. And it said an estimated 30,000 import copies were sold in the U.S. I mean, hmm. maybe it's available. The album also introduced uh, two previously unreleased original songs, Lookout and Need, Need Your Love. Need Your Love is still one of my favorites that was oh, yeah. kind of unnoticed. And uh, producer Jack Douglas, uh, he states that Live at Budokan is actually not from the Budokan concert, but Asaka which was a smaller show. Huh. He said the recording of Budokan show was a failure. That's what he says.
1: Ain't that a shame.
0: An unusual aspect of the album release in the UK was the use of color vinyl. Uh, It was then primarily restricted to singles and EPs. Then it was soon replaced as a marketing gimmick by so-called picture discs. And prominently displayed sticker on the sleeve of Live at Budokan announced that it had been released on kamikaze yellow vinyl. I've heard that term, (laughs) the kamikaze yellow vinyl. So uh, in the US, this album peaked at number four on the Billboard 200 and it became the group's best-selling album with over 3 million copies sold. It ranked number 13 on Billboard's top pop albums of 1979 and the single I Want You to Want Me reached number seven on the Billboard Hot 100. And the second single cover of Fat Stamos, Ain't That a Shame also charted reaching number thirty five. So what's interesting about this is I don't think a lot of people knew who Cheap Trick were. They this was their fourth album. So what's what's great is this this album basically propelled their career. You know, uh because this The songs I Want You to Want Me and Surrender were already on one of their, you know, the first three albums.
1: I will say a must listen to track on this album is Ain't That a Shame. To hear the drums, to just hear it build up and Mm -hmm. the, the, you know, atmosphere and energy. I love it. Every time I hear that song, I just, I get, it's kind of like Motley Crue's Kickstart Your Heart.
0: (laughs) You know, loving Cheap Trick and being, you know... That's like my favorite band. This is like right up there with some of their other, you know, great albums. As far as a live album, it's just, there, there is an extended, I swear, there's an extended version. They released Budokan 2 in uh, February 94. So Budokan 2, like I said, February 94, it had tracks, uh, Stiff Competition, On Top of the World, How Are You says it was recorded in 79 during their follow-up tour.
1: Your first two, you talked about B.B. King. You did see B.B. King live. Yeah. You did not see The Yardbirds live. No. Now, I'm Cheap, not, Trick, I'm not seen, that old. Cheap Trick you've seen several times. Yeah. How does this album compare to any of the live performances that you've been to?
0: I think the, I think the band is still great, you know, as far as live performances. I mean, they are up there in age now. They obviously had more energy (laughs) when they were younger, and I really would have loved to have seen Cheap Trick uh, in the 70s. I was a little too young then. And my parents, unlike your parents, weren't into music that, that much. My dad never listened to music. Wow. When I was listening, I was listening to what your mom was listening to. Yes. So if you were my son, you would have listened listen to that stuff. Although my son isn't really in the music, I kind of find it hard for people that aren't don't listen to music. I listen to music every
1: day. I don't know what I'd be able to do without music. Jim and I actually went to see Cheap Trick at the Balloon Festival years ago in New Jersey. Oh yeah. In yeah. Union County. You forgot about that. <laughs> I saw them open up for Aerosmith and this is one of the rare bands that is not saturated all over the radio. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know a lot about them. I knew I want you to want me and I knew the flame. Oh, yeah. And that was it. Yeah. Cheap Trick has 20 albums out. Yeah. And most people probably think they have two or three. Yeah. But seeing them open for Aerosmith, I was so blown away by them that I've seen them five times since, gotten a better understanding of their music. And now they are definitely, you know, one of my 15 or 20 favorite bands Mm -hmm. that I would listen to top to bottom, you know, no issues whatsoever.
0: They're one. They're one of the bands. I, I'm sure there's other bands out there, but every show they change the set
1: list. Yes, they do. They're
0: not doing the same show.
1: Sometimes that's upsetting. <laughs> yeah, there's a
0: there's a band. Uh, you know, it starts with K and ends with S. The second letter is I, and the last letter is S. They do the same show. Of course, they got a lot more going on. Uh, with yeah, the I think fire. they wear
1: a lot of makeup or something. <laughs>
0: yeah, I think they're still around. Long but tongues. I don't know. A little off subject, but when I when I saw I've seen Dave Matthews like eleven times. I haven't seen him recently in the last four or five years. But I went to two shows in a row, and they didn't. They never played the same song. But of course, Dave Matthews wasn't really heavy like uh, hits, right? Radio hits. Some of these bands they have to, or they feel like they have to play their their hits, right? You know, because there are people that. They might know who Cheap Trick is, and, and maybe they they come to their town like, hey, let's go see Cheap Trick. We've never seen him. And they would be disappointed if they didn't hear Surrender, I want you to want me. Even The Flame, they don't play at every show. And I've seen on Facebook people saying, they didn't play The Flame tonight, you know, so.
1: That would be disappointing. Yeah. When I went with a group of friends in Michigan, Cheap Trick opened for Joan Jett and the Black Hearts and mm-hmm. Heart. Okay. My friends were disappointed with Cheap Trick because they Mm -hmm. didn't know a lot of their music. Yeah. And they went there only knowing I want you to want me and basically not having an open mind, not really having an interest in trying to appreciate the music. Well,
0: yeah. And Cheap Trick will pull out songs that like rare songs too and And that was my
1: next thing i was gonna say only the fans they probably pulled out three songs there was one that even i didn't know and i was like Mm -hmm. whoa this is they also said they had a new album that they just released yeah so it may have been off of that album but i could understand from their standpoint not being familiar Mm -hmm. and you know maybe being a little disappointed but at the same time i was thinking like you know, mm-hmm. I'm not a diehard Cheap Trick fan, but I I do like yeah. their music and they're putting on a good show. Like you need to kind of appreciate mm-hmm. what they're doing and their performance instead yeah. of just listening for songs that you hear on the radio.
0: The one album I'm really impressed, not a live album, but Bang Zoom, Crazy Hello, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: it's, it's a good album.
0: Oh my God. And you wouldn't believe these guys like uh, Rick Nilsen is, I think like 72, not that it's he's ninety two the vocals the the energy the it's a kick ass album it's amazing, and the sad thing is because radio is almost non existent, we have a local station that plays the same you know twenty songs, <laughs> and uh
1: you're halfway there, yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah you're you're not gonna hear. You have to kind of, anymore. you kind of have to go out and explore. Take notice of these bands that have been around a while and still putting out albums. They're like Kansas put out an album recently. And, I just picked up an Alice yeah. Cooper
1: album the yeah. other day.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Detroit, Brand new album. Detroit Stories is, is, is great. Yes. So, okay, back to the live stuff.
1: I'm on number three and I may have some bias here, but not enough bias to put it at number one. I am a big ACDC fan, Mm -hmm. so ACDC Live would be number three for me. This was also released in 1992, ironically enough. Okay, But I remember as a kid, going back to our conversation earlier with the cassettes, as an ACDC fan, you had to switch the cassettes to hear some of your favorite songs. I loved Mm -hmm. the Highway to Hell album. I loved, you know, uh, The Razor's Edge. Mm -hmm. I loved Back in Black. But I don't necessarily want to... Listen to those songs to the album top to bottom. Yeah. ACDC Live was the first kind of greatest hits album Mm -hmm. that ACDC put out there. That I could listen to it track one, track, Mm -hmm. you know, 17, whatever it is. And I would know every song. I'd be able to sing along with every song, rock out with every song. I could go outside and play basketball with the boombox blasting. Uh, I could play video games with you know mm-hmm. the stereo amped up all the way mm-hmm. and just rock out to you know Brian Johnson and Angus Young just
0: mm-hmm.
1: belting it out and having yeah. a great having a great time feeling that energy live you know you, you could feel their music through the speakers mm-hmm. no matter what song it was they were belting they were rocking and the fans were into it because you know you brought up the the fact with BB King earlier Mm-hmm. Sometimes the crowd noise kind of overwhelmed.
0: I don't think the crowd could overwhelm. Yeah, day. no,
1: but they do have <laughs> moments on a CD where the crowd is still making noise and yes. just cheering and mm-hmm. going nuts. And you can feel that energy you yes. know, through the album. But it also wasn't one of those albums where sometimes you hear live greatest hits albums and they sound terrible because mm-hmm. you, you, you're such a fan that. You're kind of disappointed at the way it recorded on the album itself. It sounds great. Mm -hmm. The music is there. The lyrics are there. You know, Brian Johnson's right on tune, right in key. You can feel Angus playing the guitar right through your speakers.
0: Well, I think it comes down to the production, too. Yes. Of of, of a live album. Correct. Now, is that one show? Because I'm always interested if they... Yes. Okay. It was one show. Because that's what's amazing. Like, a live album... Like, I know um, Kiss, Kiss Alive is from, like, four or five different shows.
1: Really? Yeah. I didn't know that.
0: And what I found out recently is that one of the shows was in Wildwood. Huh. Which, and I never knew that until recently. Anyway.
1: And that's cool.
0: So, you know, when they... You th- kind of think if they took it from four or five shows that this, the one one show wasn't incre- <laughs> incredible. You know, they they had to... You know well, this sounds better than this one or
1: well now I'm actually so when you have looking, a... these are oh. all from different shows
0: oh, okay <laughs> <laughs> well it's just still a good live album right
1: yeah absolutely. there's a lot of
0: songs in there too you,
1: you just taught me something though because yeah. i didn't know that that mm-hmm. so the album when you listen to it the tracks blend together so okay. well that yeah it, it wasn't like a studio album where you hear a track end and you hear a new oh track yeah sometimes again. you can
0: hear it cut and then cut like especially with the crowd or the audience
1: yeah Yeah. and keeping that crowd noise in there yeah you know it kind of led me to believe that it was just one show but now that i'm looking here
0: but i would assume at all acdc the energy every concert is you know with the crowd they're there to see you don't just kind of stumble in on acdc i think
1: no i don't think so yeah
0: like hey mildred (laughs) what's this acdc
1: yeah They were um, banned, I believe, from Stabler Arena, because when they performed for those about to rock Uh with the cannons, it actually like screwed up the structure of the building. (laughs) (laughs) And they were like, either you need to get rid of that portion of your show or you can't come back. And they're Uh, like, we're not getting rid of that. They close out with that every show. Like,
0: yeah, the ceiling was maybe too low. Yeah. Back in Black was when I first discovered ACDC. Of course, I was 15. That was
1: 1980. And that was, I do Now you know all that. I believe that's Brian Johnson's first yeah. album. Yeah.
0: Uh, supposedly, Bon Scott, supposedly it started recording. They were. Uh, it's hard to believe that they were going to call it Back in Black. I don't know.
1: There that, is yeah. footage out there, supposedly, of Bon Scott performing Back uh, in Black. Oh, okay, okay. And I have heard that track before, and it doesn't sound right to me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Probably because you're just so used to hearing Brian Johnson yeah. perform. I um,
0: just thought of the album title that it was, well, it was in memory of Bon Scott, but, uh, I thought the title also was made to be like a memorial, you know, back, we're back in black. Correct. Which I just found out recently that Bon Scott, like they doing the album before he died or right. started it. Right. But some of those songs, honestly, I, I, I can't hear anymore.
1: I've, Heard them so many times. Yeah, I understand. you shook me. Yep. There's times, you know, being a fan, I like to listen to a lot of their more obscure songs because I, to your point, I get sick of hearing what's on the radio all the time, but they are one of those bands that even if it's something I've heard a million times, I can listen to it again and still get into it Mm -hmm. just as I did the first time I heard it. It's
0: like the Beatles. I mean, there's some songs that you don't need to hear. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You just heard them. You know, after the 500th time, you know. Yep. Or our buddy Bon Jovi. Oh, you mentioned him. You're going to have to edit that. My bad. <laughs> so, I have number four. It's I always want to say The Pretenders. It's hard to say Pretenders. Hey, we're going to see Pretenders tonight. I always say The Pretenders.
1: I always thought it was The
0: Pretenders. No, it's, so it's Pretenders Live at the Paradise Theater in Boston, 1980. Now what's unique about this is this album was a promotional item, Uh, it was to help sell their debut album. So this show was recorded on March 23rd, 1980 and it was a few months after their first release. So this album was never in the public uh, until recently. It was last year uh, for Record Store Day and I have it here. I'm going to show Jeremy. And I, I love collecting, like, color vinyl, clear vinyl. Ooh, so this has, like, a red that. splat, I don't know, kind of like a blood stain in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> clear album. So they finally put this album out, you know, to the public on Record Store Day. And it's 11 songs. Uh, and it's primarily the band's first album. So I did notice this. this isn't the best quality. This is from Wikipedia, but someone said uh, it's lacking some shimmer in the high end and could stand a little more bottom, otherwise much better than if you taped it from the radio back in the day. But it's not that bad. So when I got this, I listened to it right away and I, I just love this album because, you know, they had just recorded their first album, they're in their prime, they're like just starting, a lot of energy. You get to hear some great, you know, of course, early songs because those were their songs. I mean, imagine you only have one album out. Like I I can't imagine doing, I guess you could do a concert and do some cover tunes too. So there's 11 songs on the album. So not a lot, you know, but um, so it starts off with the instrumental Space Invader. Now, what's interesting, I found a video on YouTube. Of course, you find a video on YouTube of this song. It's not from this concert. But it's got to be around the same time. And it looks like it's at the end of a show. It might have been a TV show. And they're playing the song and these kids are dancing to it. (laughs) And it's not really a dance song. (laughs) I don't know who they thought they were seeing or I don't know. It's just weird. Some of my favorite, uh, Kid, of course, is one of my favorites. My least favorite is a song called Private Life. I think it's actually a boring kind of song. So, there's a version by uh, Grace Jones of this song. Still doesn't make it any better. And uh, we've got to so talk... The only song uh, from the second album is Talk of the Town. You know, the second album wasn't... Re- they just released the first one. So, this was a new song. Uh, most of the other ones are... Uh, Cuban Slide was on a B-side of one of the songs. Mystery Achievement, that's like one of my favorites. There's great bass on this song. Uh, and she actually mentions the Cuban Slide in this song. Uh, which is ironic. Says, so I just want to get out on the floor and do the Cuban slide. Another favorite is Stop Your Sobbing which is actually a kink song. Now, this song was supposedly written by uh, Ray Davies about a former girlfriend who fearing that fame would change him broke down in tears upon seeing how popular he had become. <laughs> and then this other biographer uh he suggested the song may have been inspired by uh, Ray Davies recently breaking up with an old girlfriend, so who knows. So that's a Kinks song, but I listened to the Kinks song and it's, it's not as exciting as the Pretenders, but they're really, you know, they're young, they're, they just put out their first album, they're really, again, really into it, that's what you want to hear in a live album it's It's sad because the guitarist was such a great guitarist and the bass player, and they unfortunately died like after the second album, of drug overdoses. I really liked the first two albums, but then I, I look kind of even back then, lost interest. I think the pretenders or pretenders put out a new album recently, like in the last year or two. Really? Believe it or not.: I did not know that. But they still have the same drummer, Martin Chambers, and I know they they played at the Stone Pony couple years ago, I wish I had gone. Even though like I said, I, I really love the first two albums. And I like that Christmas song. <laughs> two <laughs> thousand miles. But if you want to hear a really like a uh, band like just starting out and just uh totally uh creative and inventive, the songs are they're hard to describe that the pre- pretenders do. I mean if you think about it, they're unique. They aren't your straightforward pop songs. They're might be a little punk, I don't know, but uh, yeah, it's worth checking out. Now this album, uh, I don't think you can get it on like Spotify or Apple Music, believe it or not, you can't get everything on there. Uh, so you're gonna, you would have to find the vinyl. Also I, I think the original vinyl, if you're a really big fan of the uh, Pretenders, I think they're going for like three, four hundred dollars, but you're better off getting this. <laughs> Just re-release.
1: All right. <clears throat> is this
0: your last one, or your
1: no? This four. is number two. Number two.
0: Yeah. Oh, number two. Yeah. My okay. fourth album. Okay.
1: Number yes. two on my. Okay. Going backwards, five to one. Uh, gonna take you to 1994. I was seven years old at this time, and I remember remember this like it was yesterday because I actually owned the cassette. mm mm-hmm. uh, It was MTV Unplugged in New York. Nirvana. Okay. This was a big deal. Uh, my best friend as a child had an older brother who mm-hmm. was, uh, I want to say, maybe six, seven years older than us. So he was big into Nirvana. He was big into mm-hmm. kind of that grunge, yeah. Green Day, Nirvana, Pearl Jam type of music at mm-hmm. that time. So it was kind of the first band that I branched out on my own and didn't have maybe my parents influence Okay, as far as... Something you, know, you discovered on your own. Yes. Yeah. So to watch that performance, listen to the album, it was my first real like band that I kind of found on my own, mm-hmm. to your point. Some interesting things about the show, though. Kurt Cobain actually requested that the set be set up like a funeral.
0: <laughs> wow.
1: Yeah. I don't know why, but that was his thing. Do you know what year was this? 94. Okay, that was the year he That was died. the year it was released, so it I believe the performance was in 93, I'm sorry.
0: And he died in ninety-four. Correct. Yeah.
1: Despite the show's acoustic kind of feel throughout the entire album, mm-hmm. Kurt Cobain insisted on running his acoustic guitar through an amplifier <laughs> to yeah. basically extenuate the effect uh, yeah. of the music mm-hmm. and the producers were very against it, and
0: and he probably had distortion on it.
1: Yes, and they because actually, uh,
0: normally an acoustic you can get away, you know, with plugging in it and still kind of sound like an acoustic, but yeah, yeah.
1: But <laughs> they actually set up a fake box in front of the amplifier to disguise. Oh, really? Yes, it disguised it as a monitor wedge, essentially. Okay. So that was something that I found fascinating. So this album actually. It was one of the first times that I had heard the song, The Man Who Sold the World. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, the David Bowie. (laughs) Yes.
1: Um, And I didn't know that it was by David Bowie Mm -hmm. initially. So after digging, I had found that out and that got me into David Bowie music. But
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: that was influenced by my parents because, you know, searching for it, I realized that I knew the music from the radio. Oh,
0: yeah.
1: But I really fell in love with All Apologies and... The the song is acoustic based anyway, but hearing it on this album, it it just I don't know it for some reason it just it felt different at that yeah. time. I was so used to kind of the hard rock of you know ACDC, Def Leppard, mm-hmm. Guns and Roses stuff like that. All Apologies was like a rock, but a soft
0: rock. Yeah, and you can hear Kurt's voice. Yes,
1: and yeah. it just to me it had it was a perfect. Just musical song, yeah. From from Kurt Cobain, I had a hard time not putting this at number one. But mm-hmm. just as a kid, Nirvana meant a lot to me because it was that time frame. I mean, unfortunately, Kurt Cobain's death was was, was such a yeah tragic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would go on to follow the Foo Fighters, who mm-hmm. were essentially mostly Nirvana members. Yeah, there was a period through I'd say elementary, late elementary school. Where i would have nevermind mm-hmm. in bloom yeah or Unbloom. i was tv on
0: oh i love grunge and i was a huge nirvana fan. Yeah. and i have that album they re-released it on like purple vinyl or orchid vinyl i have that do you really yeah i love that album and the one thing i not musically but i remember kurt's uh sweater he was wearing or his <laughs> that gr- and I always told my wife, like, I, I, I want that, like, if I had the chance to buy it. And I, there is an article recent, uh, it was auctioned, maybe, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Huh. And some private buyer, some guy bought it. But of course, it was probably like, I want to say 20,000. I mean, who knows?
1: I was going to say thousands of dollars. And he
0: said he found something in the pocket, which was sort of, he thinks it might have been like foil and even drug. I don't know. He claims. But he said he had it hanging in his closet and his friends would come over and he'd let him wear it. I'm like, that would be like in a case. like Yeah, that would be like the
1: ultimate sin. Yeah. You can't wash that. You can't have anybody touch that. You-
0: <laughs> well, I, I used, like I said, I used to joke about, I wonder what happened to that sweater. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I, I found that article and I don't know if the guy still has it. You know, interesting. I don't know how much to be worth now. Along with anything like a guitar,
1: yeah, to the right fan, whatever they're willing to pay.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I love Nirvana, and I wish I had seen them. Uh, I know they played at Stabler. Believe it or not, I did not know that. Yeah, I think I had a friend who I think saw them there. I was such a Nirvana fan. I I was following when Kurt was missing. I knew he was in rehab. I knew he was missing that. Those days, Mm. I remember where I was. Oh my goodness! And and you know, I would go to work and I would listen to the radio, the news story, and then of course they found them. And I was—I'm serious. I I love Nirvana, and I—it's one of the bands I regret not seeing because it was '94, and I would have uh, been—I would have been like 29, so I could have definitely you know, gone to see him. So I was on a couple years older than Kurt, you know, but I was in the Pearl Jam and, uh yeah, and of course the Foo Fighters after that, but it grunge I really got into. I was even wearing the flannels
1: and... My parents were not really into the grunge scene. Mm-hmm. They weren't into grunge bands, so Nirvana, yeah. you know, they would hear me listening to it and they'd be like, why do you like them so much, you know? Yeah. It's because I liked the music that they influenced me on. Mm -hmm. So it was, I guess, kind of special to me that I had finally found something unique that, Hey, I like this and you don't now, Yeah, (laughs) as opposed to whatever you may have on the radio that I don't like, Yeah, but it wasn't, you know, at that time, rap was starting to become a big thing.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And a lot of my friends were listening to a lot of rap and, Mm -hmm. you know, there was a lot of cursing and swearing and, You know, you're, you're the age of like 10 years old. Your parents don't want you listening to that kind of stuff. I know Mm -hmm. times have changed a little bit here now, but Nirvana was clean music. Yeah. Now some of their songs may have had, you know, sexual intentions or, you know, things to that sort. But, you know, if those innuendos were there, you didn't mm -hmm. realize it. You were just listening to the music and it was just, it was different. It was, it sounded real because a lot of Nirvana's music didn't sound like it was doctored up in the studio. Mm -hmm. It just, you know, especially something like unplugged in New York. It just, it was real. And that's what you heard was what you got.
0: Yeah. Anything Nirvana. I just, I still like them. Last year we interviewed this, uh, rockabilly singer from Boston. And without knowing it, he starts going in a story. His ex-wife was Kurt Cobain's girlfriend, Right before he met Courtney Love. Wow. She's a musician. And I think she lit, She was in Boston, but Nirvana would come there and she thought she would be with Kurt, you know, or that something was going to, you know, they were going to continue. Mm-hmm. And then he goes back or something to Seattle and pretty soon she sees him. I think she saw it on, no, I think it was a British TV show or something like that. Kurt gave her a Martin guitar wow. that he owned. And supposedly it's in the Martin guitar museum. It's like a 1955 or something. Martin. Wow. Because she was a music, she was like a busker. Right. On the street. And, uh, and he gave her this guitar. Of course it's worth a ton of money now, but so that was kind of anything to do with Kurt Cobain. And I don't look at him as some people do. Like there's a, you know, there's a Facebook group for Nirvana, and I see kids that are 16, 17, and they 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 think he's a god, and and he's, but people even comparing him to that he's a better singer than Freddie Mercury. When they get older and they listen to more music, they'll realize what's really good and what's. I'm not saying Nirvana wasn't good, but they were good at what they what they did, and it was interesting. The good thing is you can if you can still listen to it and enjoy it, and. Or it brings back memories. That's the biggest thing, too. It still holds up to this day. And if that was the first, one of the first bands you discovered on your own, that holds a lot
1: of meaning, you know? Yes, it, would always, yeah. it will always hold that meaning to me, mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah.
0: Okay, so my last live album is another one of my favorite bands, and it's The Smithereens. Uh, the Smithereens, of course, they're a New Jersey band from Carteret, New Jersey. They started to get attention uh, probably, I don't know, 87, 88. They didn't become huge, Uh, they were on Saturday Night Live, they were on uh, uh, The Tonight Show. It's a great band, Uh, the lead singer had a very distinct voice, baritone, and over the years I've gotten to know the band. Unfortunately, the lead singer passed away uh, in 2017. So this concert is from 2008 and one of the places that the Smithereens would play a lot in the beginning of their career, they started around 1983, uh, was the Court Tavern in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And I think it's closed now, it was, they were going through some rough spots. And someone else bought it and I don't know, with COVID, I I, I think it finally shut them down. But this place, you walk in and there's a bar and there's a downstairs area, which is just concrete floor. It's like old school, like, I want to say it's a hole in the wall. (laughs) But a lot of great bands played there. And like I said, the Smithereens got their start there, Uh, started to get a following there. So in 2008, they decided to uh, record uh, these live concerts. And this is a combination of, this was between January 30th and February 2nd. The guitarist Jim Babjack says, there's no doubt the Court Tavern was our cavern club. The Beatles, they were that was a, a big uh, influence on the smithereens, the Beatles, the Who, the Beach Boys. In 2008, the band charged only $5 for admission, same price as when uh, they used to play there in the early 80s. Kurt Ryle of the Gripweeds, that's another New Jersey band, uh, he recorded all four nights on his portable studio equipment, and he later mixed uh, the best performances at his House of Vibes studio. So I messaged Kurt and asked him about the um, production of this album, And he says, yes, I produced that album and pulled it together from four shows they did. I worked closely with Pat especially, but also Jim, to take care of any fixes needed. But they left it to me to edit the album together, choose the songs and even the sequence. I'll always be honored by the trust they extended to me with their music. Mostly I worked to edit the best of what they played live, but there were some instances where they only did a song once and maybe a guitar was out of tune so we had to recut something. I think I put their guitars through their amps at House of Vibes to get some more separation uh and amp the bass from the DI for the same reason. That's one reason why we were able to get a big sound without having to recut much. As I recall the trick was to fit as much music on the disc as possible which meant cutting out all the talk between songs. I think the runtime on the disc is close to 79 minutes. It'd be a double album. And he says, hope this gives you some insight. So thank you, Kurt, for messaging me back with that. So what's interesting about this concert is that I was supposed to be there. I almost was there. Uh, My wife and I and uh, two of our friends went out to dinner. And our friends who we actually met through the Smothering shows, they just moved recently. They live about 10 minutes down the road now from us. We went out to dinner. My wife got really sick, possibly food poisoning. Another friend of mine who's a musician, he was standing outside the club. And I drove by, rolled down the window. I said, I don't think I'm going to make the show. My wife told me, you know, she wanted me to, I wanted to be with her. We were living with her parents nearby, but I decided not to go. I don't know, I could have gone. (laughs) (laughs) Like I said, I've known the band for a while just being a fan and then getting to know them and I was actually on the guest list for this one show. So, what's amazing about this show is it's the sound, it's... Now this is one of the newer live (laughs) albums, of course, I'm reviewing. For someone that recorded on just some portable studio equipment, but this guy Kurt Ryle, he has a great studio. But he he's also recorded other bands, including Do you remember? Well, you probably don't remember, but there's a band Paul Revere and the Raiders. There's I've heard of the, them. The lead singer Mark Lindsay records at their studio, so he he does. They do produce albums there too. Okay. But what I'm trying to say is, the sound is so vibrant so incredible you feel you actually feel like you're there you're listening to the to the live show and i know a live album that's what it's supposed to sound like but it doesn't sound muddy it doesn't sound like you're listening to a recording like it's coming through the speakers and i I gotta tell you i've seen the smithereens over 40 times uh in one form or another either just the lead singer at his house when he did his concerts or the whole band but this captures the energy of the band because it's loud, it's, it's, I know they don't like to be called power pop, but they are kind of pop songs, but intelligent pop songs. And, and Jim Babjack's an incredible guitarist, Dennis and drummer, incredible drummer, the whole band. I think this captures them perfectly. There was another live album. Uh uh in the beginning of their career uh it was at the Ritz uh which is good but there's really no uh recent live albums from them so this this is great album i love it because and it's 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 a good solid album because we have believe it or not we have 18 songs uh it's it's an hour and 18 minutes so the songs are you know real
1: long You know, I had never heard of the smithereens until Jim introduced me, Um, but you actually burned two CDs for me. Mm -hmm. And this was one of the CDs that you encouraged me to listen to. Okay. Did you like it? I did. And that it tells me that even then, that's how passionate you were about the album. Yeah. You know, here we are 13 years later and you're still talking about it. It's your number one album. Yeah. That's a big deal.
0: Well, I just, I love the band too. Like I said, I wouldn't have seen them that many times and I, I've actually been a fan since um, since 1987.
1: The year I was born. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I went to see them at the Stone Pony that year and I saw them in 88. And then I didn't reconnect with the band until maybe 2003, four. Like I said, I got, I got to be, I wouldn't say buddy, buddy, but they, they, they know me and I know them and I know the manager. He lives down the street from me. But this album has, uh, like I said, 18 songs on it. Interesting song is, um, the theme from Batman, which ends the, the concert. And I know Pat Denizio loved Batman. I remember walking up to him one time and he just looked at me and goes, it's Batman. Or something like that. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if he was watching Batman that day. There was no talk of Batman. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the one song that is, uh, I would say the, the spotlight on this album, and it is the sixth song in, is "House We Used to Live In." Now, whenever you see the Smithereens, and they do still perform, uh, they perform with Marshall Crenshaw or Robin Wilson from the Gin Blossoms, in the middle of the song they do a, like a jam. Uh, they normally go into the Who uh, song Sparks and this album is unique because they don't really go into that song. I think you can hear a tiny bit. This song is 11 minutes. Jim Babjack uh, said that it wasn't planned for the song to be 11 minutes long like when they did this live album. And then Pat pulled out a harmonica. He thought they were about to wrap it up. And then Pat pulls out a harmonica. And uh, he said, this, this surprise added a whole new dimension. I was thrilled when I heard the results. Uh, he said, The chemistry between the four of us was really strong that night. And he said, Luckily, the spontaneous jam was captured on tape. If you do go and listen, uh, listen definitely listen to House We Used to Live in. Like I said, I've seen
1: them do this many times, like I said. It's nice, though, when they can kind of freestyle and make something sound good mm-hmm. and they can feel it, too, you know, that they're extending something that typically isn't extended. Yeah. And as a fan, obviously, you know that as well, because you get used to seeing something mm-hmm. when when there's something completely different. You go, "Whoa, what is this? Yeah. And, you know, it could either be good or bad. Oh, yeah. So when it's good. That's mm-hmm. a good thing. When it's fantastic, yeah. that's a whole new level of, you know, excitement mm-hmm. as a fan. So if the band is feeling it, you know the fans are feeling it too.
0: Yeah. They've been friends since high school. So it's great they still playing together and every show is they're all they're excited to to be there. They're ex- they they love their fans and it's like they're doing the songs even though they've done them like 500 times, it's like the first time they're doing it and they're excited about playing the song. They're not just showing yeah.
1: up to collect a
0: paycheck. Oh, yeah. So definitely check this out, The Smithereens, and it's um, it's actually live in concert, greatest hits and more. I really think it should have been live at the Court Tavern. but. <laughs> and then you can also find some video on YouTube, I think, of the actual. The album's much better to listen to, and especially... Either in your car, or on your stair, you know, it's just, it, like I said, it captures what it was like to go see them. And like I said, they still perform. It's still the same band, just a different singer. So it's a different element, but the band is still tight and rocking. So
1: if you're a fan yeah. of the Beatles, you can easily transition into the smithereens. Oh, yeah. So moving on, we're up to my number one CD. Uh, again, all of my CDs held some kind of personal feeling, you know, in my heart. Mm -hmm. Music is something that, you know, surrounds me every day. If I'm working, I'm listening to music. I'm driving. I'm listening to music. I'm playing a video game. I'm listening to music and turning the volume down on the TV. But my first concert that I ever went to see, I got to see Peter Frampton open Mm -hmm. up for Journey. And Frampton Comes Alive (laughs) is my number one favorite CD. Uh, It reached number one Mm -hmm. on the Billboard Top 100. Uh, Fans of the Rolling Stone back in 2012 voted it at number three. Mm -hmm. It's just a super influential CD. Peter Frampton Live, I've seen him seven times. Mm -hmm. Never put on a bad show. He's always got the crowd into it. He always is on the stage with a purpose. Mm -hmm. He wants to be there. Yeah. You know, he wants you to enjoy the music. He wants you to join in and sing along with the music. Mm -hmm. His sound for that time period was so unique. Oh, yeah. You you talked about Led Zeppelin a little bit earlier with the Freebirds. Mm-hmm. Yardbirds. (sighs) Yeah. We talked about Led Zeppelin earlier on with the Yardbirds and Peter Frampton, what he was able to do with the guitar and some of the sounds that he was able to achieve
0: mm-hmm.
1: were unbelievable.
0: Well, that mouth device, I'm sure there's a name for it. <laughs> His,
1: yes. Whatever that mouth device is yeah. was also unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But to watch him play guitar. Yeah. I mean, the only other person that I've seen live that compared was slash now he Mm -hmm. he plays guitar differently a lot heavier harder yeah yeah um but peter frampton was just guitar behind his back jamming out fingers and he was pretty young crazy too he lost his hair by then but Mm -hmm. (laughs) but he sounded fantastic and
0: but i mean frampton comes alive he was pretty young oh very young
1: absolutely yes. yes sorry i've seen him twice how were your experiences Great, I
0: I saw him with BB King, and uh, unfortunately that that wasn't a good show for me because it was BB King's last show. I saw him at it was Peter Frampton's Guitar Circus. Okay, I forget who the other guitarist was that opened, but it was him and then BB King and then Peter Frampton. BB King, of course, at that time sat down. You know, he didn't stand. He talked more than he played. Peter Frampton came out, sat next to him, and I thought this was this is going to be incredible. Like, Peter Frampton, B.B. King. B.B. King wouldn't play. Basically told Peter, play something. Huh. It was
1: just... <laughs> wow, yeah, that's think like he was odd.
0: tired. And then I saw Peter Frampton with Cheap Trick. Cheap Trick uh, opened for Frampton. It was the Sands Casino. It had front row seats. So, that was great. Yeah. To see Cheap Trick and then Frampton. That was just two unbelievable
1: bands when i was a kid i want to say maybe my eighth christmas i actually asked for peter frampton's new cd that was out Uh uh-huh he did a cover version of the song while my guitar gently weeps yeah Mm -hmm. and to this day i still think it's the best version of that song that i've ever Mm -hmm. heard i would have never even wanted that cd if i didn't hear Frampton comes alive yeah. and see him live yep. mm-hmm. because I went there to see journey that night. I knew journey songs because oh, okay. of what my parents yeah. listened to on the radio. Mm-hmm. I had no idea who Peter Frampton wow. was. Uh-huh. I didn't know a single Peter Frampton song. Mm-hmm. And I left there. I bought a Peter Frampton concert t-shirt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I went to the boardwalk a couple of weeks later and bought a Frampton comes alive t-shirt. And I bought as many Peter Frampton albums as I could find (laughs) at The Wall. Mm -hmm. If you remember that store in the mall, Mm -hmm. they had the lifetime guarantee stickers on them and everything. Mm -hmm. I was just so blown away by that concert. I was was so fascinated with his sound because he had soft rock. He had, I wouldn't call it hard rock, but just rock. And it was just a steady... Mm -hmm. people were on their feet and they didn't sit down Yeah, and they didn't want to sit down. You know, it was electrifying. The atmosphere Mm -hmm. was just awesome. Yeah. And I mean, it was my first concert, so maybe I'm Mm -hmm. a little biased from that standpoint, but when I saw him eventually the next six times, each time Mm -hmm. still that electricity in the air, the people (laughs) wanted to be there. He wanted to be there. And it was just to this day, one of the best performances mm-hmm. I've ever seen consistently.
0: Frampton Comes Alive was one of the biggest live albums of the 70s, as well as Cheap Trick live at Pentagon. Yes. The so Frampton Comes Alive was before Cheap Trick. It um, would have been in 74 or something? Uh, 75?
1: 76, I believe.
0: Okay. I think I have the album. It was
1: released in 76.
0: Because I just started collecting albums like three, four years ago. Everybody has an album.
1: (laughs) Well, I I had,
0: you know, when I was a a kid, I had albums and in my teens and then until CDs came along and then selling my albums. And now I find I'm buying the same ones (laughs) back again.
1: I wasn't old enough to have the albums, but I've gone back and I enjoy listening to a record more than a CD. Mm -hmm. So I have started purchasing albums for my collection as well and that was one of the first ones that i had to add so you have a turntable or you just have albums i did have a turntable my ex-girlfriend now has it but you need to get a turntable i need to get another turntable absolutely <laughs> because now i just have albums mm-hmm. <laughs> so i
0: have i have a one last thing it's an honorable mention it's a it's a new old one because it it just came out probably two three weeks ago but it's older and it's it is Marshall Crenshaw, The Wild Exciting Sounds of Marshall Crenshaw. And I have the CD here. I don't think it's available on uh, vinyl, but I just love this album cover. It's actually an old photo of Marshall, probably from the 80s, I would say. In a a photo booth. And it says live in the 20th and 21st century. So this is is two CDs. Now, the first uh, disc is drawn from... Just 1983, uh, when he, it says 1983 stints for syndicated radio shows when he did live performances. Hmm. And then the second disc is the last 25 years.
1: You know, the Who did something similar. They just Mm -hmm. released a, it wasn't a live album, but a greatest hits album where they went kind of the first years and then the newer years. So
0: I I think this, this CD is a great introduction to Marshall Crenshaw, if you have no idea who he is. Um, he lives in New York right now, and he actually is singing with the Smithereens now. And believe it or not, they're playing in my town with Marshall. So I hope to meet Marshall for the first time. We'll see. I always love Marshall's first album. Some people's first album is like you think their best album, right? But his albums in the last, like, 10, 15, 20 years, I've been finding more and more songs that maybe I haven't heard before that I really love. He did have a minor hit with Someday, Someway, which was played a little bit on the radio. He's often been compared to Buddy Holly, and he's also a Buddy Holly fan, but he was in the movie La Bamba. Hmm. And he played Buddy Holly in the movie. He was also one of the original performers in Beatlemania, which was on Broadway and he played John Lennon. One of the songs I discovered probably in the last couple of years was a song called Little Wild One. I think it's a great song because it's, it's a unique song because it's really, it's hard to describe it. It's really, really s- slow song and then it picks up, the chorus picks up into this like buddy hot like rock and and then it goes back down again and it's it's just unique. I was a little disappointed in that this song is not on here. I don't know maybe it wasn't a big hit for him but I love that song. What's unique is the very last song he does on uh, the second disc, the very last song, a song called Valerie by Richard Thompson. But before he starts the song, someone shouts out a request for Little Wild One. And he actually says, we don't know that one. Thanks for asking. I wish we could play it. (laughs) So so it's mentioned on here, but I don't know why. And I know certain songs, some artists, I've read that some songs he just doesn't do. You know, some artists just Maybe in the studio it was, they had other musicians, it was a little, it's not as easy maybe, or maybe they don't like the song. Some artists maybe don't like playing a certain song. You may not they just have never
1: comfortable playing it live.
0: Yeah, and they just never, well, on, the, on the, in the spur of the moment, but it, this is a live album and it's, and it's a combination of concerts, so you would think it might be on there, but I have the feeling he's, he doesn't play this song. Right. So maybe I'll ask him that when I, do you ever play that song? <laughs> can you play that song please okay so that wraps it up for our five favorite
1: live albums you know we talked a lot about harmonica earlier Mm -hmm. if i had to have an honorable mention it would be aerosmith in some way shape or form and i know they've got several live albums out there
0: uh honking on bobo right that one's not live no, oh, oh, live. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking harmonica.
1: That it's got a lot of harmonica yeah, in okay, it. Absolutely, yeah. it's a great album. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that would be. I, I don't have a, an album off the top of my head. Yeah. But they have several live albums out there. Another band I've seen live. I
0: don't listen to a, a ton of live, but but over the years, there's live ones that are just great that you know every once in a while you will listen to. But I I listen to more uh, studio I think albums. Than anything. Intro and exit music by the band 99%. Today's show was produced and edited by Jim Thatcher. Jim and Mike Talk Music is recorded at, did you say, seven studios in Washington, New Jersey. You can find Jim and Mike Talk Music on Apple Music, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to podcasts.